Good morning, church. It's good to see you here today. We're thankful that you're here. As we think of uh, this upcoming July 4th, thankful for the freedoms that the Lord has given us in this country and hope that as you celebrate that, you'll uh, reflect back on that with gratitude for the physical freedom that we have, also our spiritual freedom as well. So this morning, we are going to be in the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles and can turn to chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. If you'd like a Bible, uh, feel free to raise your hand and one of our ushers will give you one. We'll also be taking communion uh, a little bit later on, and so the ushers will go back through later uh, with the elements, but if you want to grab those two, you can. So Philippians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. So if you remember last week, Pastor Phil did an excellent job of helping us to see Paul's call for unity uh, amidst conflict in this church in Philippi. It took a lot of boldness on Paul's part to identify these two women uh, and, and really let the whole church know that there was an issue and to call the church to come alongside to help them uh, navigate this challenge. And we know that conflict and division rob us of joy, and Paul wanted these two women to get their joy back by pursuing unity. And Paul didn't want the Philippians to get the wrong impression of him as he's doing this there. He didn't want it to come across as harsh and unloving. Uh, he wanted them to see his heart for them. He loved them deeply to the point where he was willing to bring up these concerns with them. So that then takes us into today where we're going to see the importance of having a Christ-like mind and why that matters. And that'll be our focus in verses 5 through 9. So if you have your Bibles and you're able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's Word, starting in verse 5. I'll just back up to verse 4 uh, and then read through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You may be seated. Let's pray to the Lord for this. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can come unto you this morning we're thankful that as we have our worries and our cares, that we can come and release these to you, and we can have the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. So I pray today, Lord, that those who are anxious or worried or lack this peace will come away knowing that you are a God who grants such things. I pray that they will be able to do this. We're thankful for your nearness, Jesus, to give this to us and help us when we cannot ourselves. So thank you for this Christ-like mind, Lord, and I pray that uh, today, we can all put that on. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So there was a man who had worked his way to the top. After years of hard work and efforts, he was finally noticed by his boss, and, and he was promoted all the way up. He was second in command, right at the very top. And we'll just call this man Mr. H. And so everybody else recognized the giftings of Mr. H and how he had made it to the top, and they publicly uh, thanked him and recognized him and really bowed down to him. 
all that is except one. See, there was this other man, we'll call him Little M, who didn't. And it just seemed that no matter what, Little M would not acknowledge Mr. H. And people started to notice that. Like, what's his deal? Why is he not, you know, falling down before him or whatever? And word got back to Mr. H. Hey, by the way, there's this guy, Little M. He's just not, you know, digging this whole thing with you, you know. And it really started to bother Mr. H. And so he would walk by Little M just to see if that was true. And he noticed that that was true. The more he thought about it, the more it started to bother him. He'd go home at night really wrestling with this. His thoughts would run in his, in his mind. He just won't acknowledge me. He just won't respect me. And his mood would get lower and lower, and he'd get more angrier and angrier. Well, finally, one day, it, everything just came to a head. So Mr. H came into work, and there was a little limb right there. Couldn't miss it. They walked right by each other. And little limb, nothing. And Mr. H, he was done. He had it at that point. This guy's out of here. I'm getting rid of him. So he comes home from work that day, and his wife could tell that something was really bothering him now. I mean, he was just really in a bad mood. just really snappy and irritable. And she said, what's going on? And, and he starts to tell her, and then he gets on the phone and, and whatever, you know, communicates with his friends, you know, I've got this problem here. What do you think I should do? And so his wife and friends help him come up with this great plan to get rid of little Lim. He loves it. Oh, this will be the end of this guy. But he knew he needed to, you know, communicate that to his boss, like why he needed to do this. So he just couldn't wait. Next morning at the crack of dawn, he's getting into work early. First thing he's going to do is go talk to his boss and uh, little Lim is done. But uh, before he could say anything, his boss said, hey, I need to talk to you. He's like, great, perfect opportunity. His boss said, I I've got a problem here. Um, there's this really loyal employee. Uh, he it has been, he's one of our best workers. Um, we've really got to celebrate this guy. What do you think we should do to celebrate the best worker we have? Well, it didn't take Mr. H more than a few seconds to, to just think, well, he must be talking about me. I mean, who else is, there's no one else that's better than me. Like, what a, what a nice way to get at me. So he comes up with this great plan and, and tells his boss that. And his boss says, wonderful, I, I want you to do everything that you've said. And by the way, uh, the name of this employee that you're going to be doing that to is Little Lim. Well, there's a lot of pie that Busy Corner serves, but one they don't have is humble pie. And that's a lot of what Mr. H ate that day. Now, you probably recognize this story. It's a true story. It's found in the book of Esther with Mordecai and Haman. Remember that story? And we remember that wrong thinking is what led Haman to his own demise. So wrong thinking has infected and plagued more people than wars, uh, diseases, accidents. After all, it was wrong thinking that got an angel thrown out of heaven. And our text today isn't just only about wrong thinking. It's actually a call to think like Jesus. As Paul will show us, the fact that Jesus is near serves as motivation and empowerment to also think like Jesus does. So our main point today is this, be known for your gentleness and Christ-like mind, not for your worrying or stinking thinking. So be known for your gentleness and Christ-like mind, not for your worrying or stinking thinking. So the thread that runs through our text today is the nearness of Jesus the nearness of Jesus. It's the nearness of Jesus that challenges the Philippians to pursue unity. 
It's the nearness of Jesus that enables them to rejoice in hard times. It's the nearness of Jesus that produces gentleness rather than harshness. And it's the nearness of Jesus that frees them from worry. It guards their hearts and minds and allows them to think rightly. So without the nearness of Jesus, we would lack joy. We too would be overwhelmed with worry or consumed by care. So is there anyone here today perhaps struggling with a lack of gentleness, wishing that you could be more known for gentleness than you are for, say, impatience? Anybody here today like that? Or perhaps anyone here today wrestling with worry, feeling robbed of joy and peace? Or anyone here today maybe using the wrong end of, the, of your binoculars to look through life, struggling to see the good in your situation or in others or even with God? Well, if so, you're, at the, you're in the right place at the right time and in the right text. So the first point we see is this, Jesus is near, be gentle. Jesus is near, be gentle. We see that there in uh, verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So the ESV there has reasonableness. Your Bible may have a footnote that says that can also be translated gentleness. And that same word is translated gentleness in a number of other passages. So 2 Corinthians 10.1, for example, it's translated as gentle, referring to uh, Jesus. Jesus is gentle. Likewise, Paul uses this word translated gentle in 1 Timothy 3.3 to speak of the elders who are to be gentle. And Titus, too, is urged to show gentleness. So what is gentleness? Well, gentleness is a word that's hard to summarize with just a single English word. It carries the meanings of kindness, of graciousness, of mildness, nonviolence, and fairness. Gentleness is not reactionary or easily set off. Gentleness would imply meeting the other person halfway and not insisting on their perfect obedience. So to be clear, gentleness is more than a personality aspect. Paul is calling for every kind of personality to be gentle, not just those who are maybe more easygoing. Also, gentleness is not a substitute for niceness. The person who always agrees, who never pushes back, who is always cool with everything, never, never, raises their, never says a word, is not necessarily gentle. So think of gentleness like brakes on a car or a leash on a dog. We had our dog sent off to uh, get some training, hopefully make it a better dog. And <laughs> the trainer sent us this little video and, and the dog's sitting like right there and she's throwing all these toys right beside it. And you know dogs just like want to go all after these toys. And it was just sitting there. And you could tell it wanted to so bad, just go after that toy. But it was constrained. It, it, was, it was controlled. And, and gentleness is like restraint. It holds us back from expressing sinful anger. I think of gentleness as more than a zipper on your mouth. Gentleness really redirects our hearts to express words that are God-glorifying rather than God-diminishing or other-hurting. So Paul wants the Philippians to be known for their gentleness. And a lack of gentleness would result in division and conflict, as we saw last week with these two women. So a great question to ask ourselves is, what are we known for? Are we known as Mr. or Mrs. Complainer? Criticizer? Corrector? Fault finder, 
impatient or annoyed? You see, there's a lot of things we could be known for, but we don't want to be known for the wrong reasons. And sadly, we as Christians are often known for a lack of gentleness, especially on social media. So what do you do if gentleness and your name are not typically associated with each other? Well, the nearness of Jesus is the key to gentleness, not merely pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Jesus is the most gentle person there is, Matthew 28, uh, 11, 28 to 30. He invites us to drink from His gentleness. And it's our connection with Jesus that enables us to grow in our own gentleness, regardless of our personality type, background, or past experiences. So what would it look like then for ourselves and our church to be known for more than anything except loving Jesus for our gentleness? Well, Paul gives the Philippians hope, again, because Jesus is near. And since Jesus is near to the Philippians, and because of His nearness, the Philippians can be gentle. They can be relieved of their anxiety. They can think like Jesus. So how does the nearness of Jesus encourage you? He is near not to hurt you or to scare you, but to lovingly strengthen and change you. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came not for the gentle, but for harsh and selfish people to transform them into gentle. So if you've been struggling in this area of gentleness, take hope in the fact that we have a Savior who is, for, who is far more gentle with us than we ever deserve. Paul then carries the, the, gentle, or the, the nearness of Jesus into verse 6, which is our second point. Jesus is near, don't worry. Jesus is near, don't worry. So this nearness of Jesus looks backwards to the gentleness, but also carries forward into their thinking. So in verse 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your, let your requests be, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul commands the Philippians not to worry. Instead of worrying, they should take their concerns to God in prayer, and they should let their concerns be filled with thanksgiving instead. So it's the nearness of Jesus that will bring them peace, that will guard their hearts and minds. Now, this word for anxious that Paul uses here is not always used in a negative sense. The word is sometimes used to indicate a godly concern. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, we see that Timothy was concerned for the Philippians. So same word, there it was used in a positive sense. So did you know there's actually a right kind of worry? That's right. There is a right kind of worry. So all worry and concern is not necessarily bad. Godly worry is the proper concern and care that you should have for the responsibilities and the tasks that God has given you. Godly worry is the concern about the things of the Lord, the gospel, people, and the church. That's the right kind of concern. So someone who says, oh, I just don't have a care in the world. Maybe they should be worried because they don't have any worries. So the right kind of worry leads us to watch our children so that they're not playing on the edge of a cliff. The right kind of worry leads us to buckle our seatbelts and to not drive recklessly or not stick our hand on a hot stove. The right kind of worry drives us to our knees in prayer, not to the liquor to drown our care. But Paul isn't talking about right worry here. He's talking about sinful worry. 
So sinful worry would include all of the concerns about daily living, such as how will we pay the bills, Uh, how will we have enough money to retire, or what if something happens to my loved ones that I can't control. Sinful worry borrows from tomorrow, tries to take on God's responsibility, and is focused on self or circumstances instead of the Lord. So bad worry stresses hopelessly over the things of this world. Now, how might you know if you've moved from godly worry to sinful worry? Any thoughts on that? How would you know if you, if you get to that point? Well, a couple things here. If the worship of your heart is not on God, but on some other substitute, that would be an indication. Or if your thoughts are focused on changing the future instead of trusting God, that would be another way to tell. Or instead of praying, you worrying I know that's not good English, but you get my point there. Or when you rely on your own strength and abilities to try and resolve things rather than the Lord's. Or when trouble controls you instead of you controlling it. Or when your trouble causes you to neglect the other responsibilities that you have. So those would be some indications that your worry has moved from a godly concern to a sinful worry. And we could give a lot more examples. So Paul knows that the Philippians have a lot of concerns about their future, about their finances, about their health, their provisions, their relationships, all of these things. Same things that we do, right? And so prayer gives them an an alternative. So, So Paul gives them an alternative, which is prayer. You could say it like this, never anxious, always praying. Never anxious, always praying. So prayer then is the weapon that God gives us to fight anxiety. Now, if we're honest, I think we do a lot better job at worrying than we do praying. Anyone agree with that? Could any of you here, if there were such an occupation of a professional worrier, any of you feel like you could do a good job at that? Some of us probably could. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, I'm not here to beat anyone up over a lack of prayer. It would be easy to do. Listen, if you just prayed more, then you wouldn't be such a nervous Nelly. But we don't want to minimize the truth either that God has given us prayer as an important weapon to fight our worry. If we don't take our concerns to the Lord in prayer, then we're not going to get, we're not going to make much headway uh, against our worries. And Paul in the church in Philippi knew a little something about prayer. After all, if you remember, this church was started from a prayer meeting. Paul wanted to see that continue. So this was a praying church. Paul himself knew a lot about prayer. This is the fourth time in Philippians that Paul is urging them to go to the Lord in prayer. Now, it's common to hear people say something like, prayer changes things. But really, Paul's confidence is not in the prayer itself, but in the one who is near and who the prayer is directed towards. Paul knows that Jesus will hear his people praying and will respond by giving them hope and enabling them to endure. So the circumstances and the struggles that the Philippians are facing were constantly changing. But guess what? They have a Savior who never changes. Therefore, the Philippians do not need to be anxious because Jesus will never be surprised or caught off guard. Jesus will always have the time and attention to listen to whatever it is that's troubling them. Is there anyone here today who can relate to that? Is there anything that's bothering you today? If there's anything we can pray about, we're glad to do that. You can put your requests on the check-in cards or you can catch one of us after the service and we'll be glad to pray for you here, but don't carry it around yourself. 
Notice the attitude in which prayer is to happen with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. So thanksgiving in the midst of worry is one of the most challenging mindsets to have, mindsets and attitudes to have. It's not something we typically feel in the midst of our troubles. Yet thanksgiving is the aspect that separates Christians from non-Christians. The unbeliever gives no thanks to God, but on the other hand, the Christian's life should overflow with thanksgiving. So thanksgiving is the expression of gratitude that we have for God's providence and care, His provision and care. Notice that Paul says uh, how to give thanksgiving and when, not just sometimes and for some things, but at all times, in all things, and for all people. Without thanksgiving, prayer can easily turn into just a a series of demands from God. Lord, give me this, and and give me this, and give me this. We know what it's like when our children uh, continually come to us with nothing but demands. I want this, and this, and this. It can be a little tiring, right, eventually. So thanksgiving really helps with that. Thanksgiving requires a strong view of God's sovereignty, believing that no matter what the situation looks like from our perspective, God is in control and is guiding it for our ultimate good and what's best for our lives. So in order to give thanks, we need to remember and dwell on God's work in all of our life, including the present moment that we find ourselves in. So it's the nearness of Jesus that enables us to be gentle and to be thankful. When I'm in the middle of worry and concern, I'm not inclined to be thankful, just being honest there. I'm much more inclined to complain about it. It doesn't always seem obvious to my eyes that things are going to work out for my ultimate good. I can feel more like the conquered than I can the conqueror. But Jesus, but Jesus, it's His presence and His power that enables us to work through our anxieties with prayer and thanksgiving. It's His presence that will help you do the same. So is there something here that you're holding on to today? Some kind of worry or concern that you've just kind of got in your back pocket, unwilling to let it go to God? Maybe you don't think that Jesus needs to be bothered with it. I mean, after all, there's probably a lot of people here today who have greater concerns than we do. Why should I share my little thing with Him? But I want to encourage you to bring it to the Lord and stop holding on to it yourself. If you look at how Paul ends verse 6 with this command, make your requests known to God. I don't think that we often grasp the significance of that, make your requests known to God. Only God and His Son, Jesus Christ, can answer your prayers. I can't answer them. You can't answer them. Your friends can't answer them, but God and His Son, Jesus Christ, can. Money or possessions can't answer them. The very fact that the God of this universe, who has created all things, things bigger than we can imagine, things tinier than we can even see, who has controlled the entire course of human history from the very beginning to this present moment, who became a man so that we could know God, He has called us to come to Him with our requests. So I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Is there anyone here today who is holding on to something, a worry or concern, and is afraid to let it go? Is anyone here who is trying to take back from God the very thing that you just said you were going to give Him 30 seconds ago? If so, know that Jesus is near, and because He is near, you don't need to worry. 
So my kids, uh, especially when they were young, used to be scared like about monsters or a lot of things like that. And uh, they believed that daddy could protect them from those things. What they didn't know was there was a lot of things daddy couldn't protect them from. He couldn't control sicknesses they got or things that might happen to them. But they still were able to sleep easy at night, trusting in a human dad. And if our children can have that same confidence to fall asleep without worry, trusting an earthly father who is very limited in protecting them, then how much more confidence can we have in a heavenly father who is infinite and who truly can protect us and see us through anything? Our worry says something about God. It says He's not big enough. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. But remembering who God is, that He's near, and that He's big enough to take all of our worries can help us. So that's why Paul can tell them not to be anxious. In verse 7, Paul gives them the result of doing these things. God's peace will guard them. Now, it's important to notice what Paul says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that God will do whatever they want or change every circumstance or fix every problem. But he does say that God will give them a peace that surpasses all understanding. In the Old Testament, peace or shalom included this idea of wholeness, of well-being. War would be absent prosperity and health would abound. There would be spiritual and relational uh, wholeness. The Jews longed for this. They, they longed for the time in which the world would be restored, where there would be no more wars or judgments from God. In the New Testament, the Gentiles longed for peace as well. They looked for someone to usher in the golden age, where they could live in peace and security. The best they could accomplish was this Roman peace, that came uh, because of the conquest of the surrounding world. But what is the peace of God? Is it an overwhelming sense of inner contentment? Is it the serenity that characterizes God himself, who is never anxious? Is it the peace that results from God's justifying work in Christ? Well, I believe the kind of peace that Paul is talking about here is that inner security, that inner rest. It's a peace that God gives believers. It's that inner contentment given by the Lord that's a fruit of the Spirit. It's the peace that Isaiah 26.3 describes. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. So in contrast to the anxiety the Philippians are faced with, the peace of God guards their hearts and minds like a fortress. The peace of God surpasses any anxiety or worry that we face, no matter what the situation is or the circumstances. That's why Paul can say his peace surpasses all understanding. Now, there are things in life that we use to protect ourselves. We use uh, umbrellas in the rain, or I'm assuming your roof has some kind of shingles or metal over it to protect things from getting in. But the peace that Paul is talking about is, is a little different. God's peace is different. It protects from the inside out. So there's coming a day in which the whole world will experience ultimate peace. There will be no more fighting or relational conflict. But guess what? Right now, you can have true shalom, true peace, even though life is falling apart around you. 
This peace comes not through politics or procedures or policies, but through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. God's peace guards believers better than any home security system or a dozen Doberman pinchers could ever do. The imagery is one of God protecting the heart like a watchman on duty, protecting their heart and mind from any anxiety and worry and from being led astray, preventing anything from getting the upper hand. So it's the presence of Jesus then that enables believers to have joy in all circumstances, to have freedom from anxiety, to be gentle, and to think like Jesus. That then leads us to our third point. Jesus is near, think rightly. Jesus is near, think rightly. So if you notice how the verse 8-9 ends, the peace of God will be with you. So again, that theme of the nearness of Jesus. So Paul starts verse 8 by saying, finally... Back in chapter 3, Paul said that, and there we said he's not done with the letter yet. So what he meant by was in addition to. Now he finally is wrapping things up. And so Paul is saying, in addition to what I've said before, I want you to think rightly. So Paul wants the Philippians to think rightly. He then takes a set of virtues that were well known in the world he was living in, part of the Roman world, but he gives them added meaning in light of Christ. So in other words, the Romans were familiar with honor. They were familiar with truth. They were familiar with pureness and justice, all of these things. But Paul is not telling the Philippians to merely live like the pagans do and settle for that. He's really taking these virtues and giving them, uh, he's running them through a Christ-like filter there. So he begins with starting with right thinking, thinking about whatever is true. Just as we said in the beginning, we know that wrong thinking leads to all kinds of problems. What happens when you start to think wrongly or thinking about things that aren't true? What happens to your mood? It starts to go downhill. You start to get a little angrier and irritated. Next thing you know, you're imagining things that happen that you don't even know if they ever would happen. Right thinking or thinking like Jesus, though, means to think about the things that are true. This would require we discern truth from things that are false. This would mean that we view the, the world through the lens of Christ, rejecting all claims that would masquerade themselves as truth. So whatever is true must align with truths about God and the gospel. It must fit within the framework that God exists that he's personally involved in a world where the greatest problem is sin and the solution is a savior. Apart from Christ, we can't understand truth. We can't understand the depth of our spiritual blindness that requires a savior to get the right perspective on life. So here's an example about thinking about what is true. God is in control of all things. So nothing happens in my life unless it first comes through the hands of a good and loving God fate or chance or anything like that is not in control. Therefore, I can trust God even if I don't know what's coming. So that would be an example about thinking what is true. Next, he says to think about whatever is honorable. That would mean to think on things in life that are all inspiring, majestic, or holy. So the alternative to that or the opposite to that would be to think about the vulgar or God dishonoring aspects of life. 
So an example would be the way a, a man perhaps looks at a woman. To think about her in an honorable way would be to treat her as a sister in Christ if she's a believer or a fellow, gym, or a fellow image bearer who should be respected instead of dishonored or in a lustful way. He then tells us to think about whatever is, rot, uh, whatever, whatever is just or right. So what's the standard that we use to tell if something is just or right? Not the world's standards, but what God has said in the gospel, or not even what our feelings say. So suppose someone hurt you, someone in church hurt you. Maybe that person really did hurt you. Maybe it was really true. What would it look like to think about whatever is right? Well, that would mean instead of replaying the scene a thousand times in our mind about how much they've hurt us and what we need to do to respond wrongfully to that or who we need to call and tell about it, it would be to think about how would Jesus have me love this person? What would it look like to love them in the way that Jesus would? Then Paul says to think about the things that are pure. So this would be a focus on the things of God, the good things of life, a despising of sinful thoughts. So this thinking would reject sexually impure thoughts, pride, envy, materialism. It would include the desire to want to be as holy as God is holy. So an obvious example of this about pure thinking would be to reject lustful thoughts. But another example would be to think about assuming the best of others. So impure thinking would assume the worst about others. Oh, I know, the, I know their motives. They're up to something. They're always trying to get me this and that, but, but right thinking or pure thinking would assume the best about them. Then we're to think about whatever is lovely, whatever is lovely. So this kind of thinking is focused on the things that bring God delight, the things that God is attracted to. So what kind of things does God get delighted in? What is God attracted to? God is delighted in graceful speech. God is delighted in a Beethoven symphony a Rocky Mountain sunset, a little baby snuggling up to his mother. God is delighted when Christians forgive each other or go out of their way to show love to one another or bear each other's burdens. So what would it look like for us to think about whatever is lovely? We could look around the church and instead of focusing on the flaws, what we don't like or what we don't want to change, we could think and delight in all the ways that other people are living out the gospel. Then we are to think about whatever is commendable. So this would be anything worthy of a good report, not a bad report. That's the kind of thinking that's kind, that's likely to win people, not the kind that's fault-finding and offensive or divisive. It's the kind that opposes the mindset of fault-finding. So an example of thinking of things that are commendable would be to Look at the things that are positive in someone else's life instead of pointing out their flaws. So what do you notice? What, what evidences of grace do you see in that person's life? And commend them for that. Now, Paul's last two statements here sum everything up. So Paul says, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So that really sums everything up. So we could describe the Christian mindset is the mindset that God wants us to have like this. Identify and fill your mind with every kind of thought that is excellent 
and brings praise to God, and then allow those thoughts to direct and shape the way you live life. So fill your, fill your mind with everything that's excellent, that brings praise to God, and then allow those thoughts to direct and shape your life. Now again, I don't need you to tell you again how our failure to think in this matter uh, only ends up hurting us and others. Wrong thinking leads to wrong actions. It, it, le- it threatens our witness to this world. On the other hand, uh, right thinking leads to a positive witness in this world. It changes the way that we treat our spouse or coworkers or siblings or those we run shoulders with on a Sunday morning. Thinking like Jesus enables us to interact with this world but not compromise because we are able to spot truth from error. So what hope do we have in our thinking? More often than not, I I believe you would agree, we struggle to think like this. What if we've been letting anxious or troubling thoughts get the upper hand? Well, if that's your challenge, you're in the right spot. It's Jesus in his presence who is the solution to our struggles. And now, in a very special way, we are going to reflect and remember the presence and work of Jesus for worriers such as you and I, for the negative Nancys, for the complaining Chucks, for the doubting Thomases, and the harsh Henrys. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you would like, uh, if you forgot to pick one of these up, just raise your hand and one of our helpful ushers will give you one. But we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are going to remember how Jesus is interceding for worriers such as you and I like right now to anticipate his return when he will make all things right so there will be no more worries, no more bad thoughts. We're going to look back on Christ's sacrificial work on our behalf to remember this is why he came to die and to look around to our fellow brothers and sisters and be reminded of Jesus' presence and great work in their lives as well. So I would invite any of you who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation and who are fighting sin repentantly, not perfectly, but repentantly, to come to the table to be reminded of Jesus' presence and great work for you. So I'll read here from Matthew 26, uh, starting in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing, it broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So if you peel back that top layer, let us eat of the bread and be reminded of Christ's body that was broken for our sins. And then he took a cup, and when he had given it to them, he gave thanks, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So if you peel that bottom one back and uh, drink the juice without spilling it on yourself, we'll be reminded of the blood of Jesus that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. So as we come to the Lord's Supper today, let no one here today in life or in death ever claim that you have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, 
a solemn moment, but also a joyful moment to think back of your work for us. We are thankful that you did not leave us in our worry and fear and anxiety and unchristlike thinking, but you have come to change us. We're thankful for the freedom that we can have in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your presence, Jesus. You are interceding for us. You hear our prayers. You are near to us. And I pray today for everyone who is struggling with worry and who has it in their back pocket, not willing to release it to you, that they will come to you to give those things to you, to know that you are in control, that you are good and faithful and can be trusted no matter what things look like. I pray that all who would try to go and take those things back from you would stop and remember that you are big enough to handle it. Lord, we pray that we can be known for our gentleness. We pray that you will continue to transform us, make us into your image so that we can be gentle. And Lord, let us think rightly. Let us think like Jesus. Please help us, Lord. Please work within us to do that. So thank you again for your peace, which surpasses all understanding. And I pray today that that peace will guard each and every person in here. In your name we pray.